It is a joy to be here with you all on this beautiful Lord's Day. Um, And just as Brother Samuel always says when he preaches, and so I say and confess to you all now, if you are a guest, I am not the pastor. So please come back. Uh, Do not let this (laughs) one service be a judgment on the church as a whole. We have a pastor, dear pastor, um, a man that I love, a man who loves God and loves his people and loves his word. And uh, he is out today um, because he had a procedure done. He had some wisdom teeth taken out. And uh, I can testify just to how painful that is post-surgery. So as we already probably are, let's continue to pray for Pastor Brian that the Lord would grant him a quick and speedy recovery. Uh, When he asked me what I wanted to preach, um, I didn't want to take John 1-1 from him. Neither am I capable to do so, Uh, but I would like to piggyback and keep on going in the book of Philippians. So if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, that is where we'll be this morning. And just to refresh our minds and our hearts as to what has taken place thus far, Brian has taken us through verses 1 through 11, and it is Paul's greeting to the church in Philippi. This is an active church, as we know, that has participated in the gospel with Paul. He thanks them in verse 3, thanks God for them, always offering prayer with joy in his every prayer for them in view of their participation in the gospel. He exhorts them and encourages them in verse 6, letting them know that he is confident that the work that Christ has started in him, in them, he will complete. And going on down to verse 9, it is Paul's prayer for the church in Pi, for the church in Philippi that their love would abound, would grow still more and more in real knowledge and discernment so that the church would be able to approve the things that are excellent in order to stand sincere and blameless. Before Christ, And as Dr. Fairchild put so well last week, how do we get to a place like verse 10, verse 11? The way our love abounds in real knowledge and all discernment, the way that we're able to approve the things that are excellent so that we can stand before Christ, sincere and blameless, is that we are filled with the fruit of Christ. The fruit of righteousness, excuse me, which comes through Jesus Christ, all to the glory of God. And praise of God, which thus lands us at our text this morning, verses 12 through 20. Read along with me in your Bible. He says, And I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Verse 15, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. And the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? 
Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I will rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will now as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, your holy word, we know that it is perfect and that your word has a purpose and that you will work out that purpose in us. Father, I pray that I would just simply be a mouthpiece for the text, God. And that your spirit would teach us and show us the only way that you can, Lord. Move in the hearts of your people today. And above all, I pray that Christ would be exalted in our hearts. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Suffering is unavoidable for the true believer in Christ. Jesus spoke of this, and there's many different passages we could go to in Scripture. But one that came to my mind was John 16.33. Jesus is addressing his disciples, and he tells them, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Jesus spoke of this many spoke of that many times to his disciples and Paul even spoke of this to Timothy in 2nd Timothy chapter 3 verse 12 he is telling them in that chapter 3 that difficult times will come in the world and in the church and then in verse 12 he tells Timothy indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted You will suffer. And that is the bottom line for any true believer in Christ is that you cannot avoid suffering. If you profess to know Christ, if you say you love him, if your desire is to please him, then you will suffer. In Luke chapter 9. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is speaking to everyone, and even more so his disciples. He tells them in verse 23 of Luke chapter 9, this is our Lord speaking. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who finds it. You see, anyone who desires to come after Christ, to be a disciple of Christ, to follow Christ, must take up their cross daily and follow him. We know this. And Jesus was not only saying that we must die to our desires daily and seek the Lord's, that we must die to ourselves and our wants and our desires, but he was also alluding to the death that the disciples would endure in the suffering. Our Lord did not just by happenstance use the cross randomly. He knew what he was doing. The cross is a picture of suffering. And as Christians, we must take up our cross and suffer well. 
brothers and sisters, how we as the church and as individual believers in Christ, Christ react to suffering in a watching world, and believe me, they are watching, is everything. Our character and how we react as believers in Christ in the midst of suffering to a watching world and to fellow believers is everything. And here's why. Because it gives testimony as to what's in our hearts and our motives. And we'll see that in the text. We must be prepared to suffering because suffering is coming And if there is any other person besides the Lord Jesus Christ to look at as what it means to suffer well, it is the Apostle Paul. And although there aren't any direct imperatives or strict commands in our text today, there are many things, many attitudes, many actions that we can imitate from Paul. And we will see the benefits, the response and the hope in suffering. So look with me at Philippians 1, 12 and 13. He says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Paul is in dire circumstances. He is imprisoned. Is he panicked? Is he worried about how he's going to get out? About what's going to happen next? Is his mind in disarray? No, not at all. Rather, he says, I want you to know, brethren. The Greek word for know there is the Greek word gnosko. I hope I said that right. It means to recognize, to perceive, to understand something deeply. There is a seriousness here, a weightiness here to what Paul is saying. He's saying to the Philippians, I want you to get something. You need to understand this and get this in your mind and in your heart. So serious. It is not to be taken lightly. He is not deterred. He is not going off onto different paths. His mind is focused on one thing, and that is the progress of the gospel the progress of the gospel, and he wants them to understand, listen, my circumstances, as painful as they may be, they have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul's circumstances caused the gospel to advance. Look at verse 13. He says, So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Paul is no criminal. He didn't do anything wrong. But he's in prison because he loves Christ and he preaches the gospel. And that is why he states in verse 13 that his imprisonment or his chains are in Christ. The whole Praetorian Guard, because of Paul's obedience and everyone else knows the gospel, how? Is Paul in an Airbnb, a holiday inn, enjoying three meals a day and a hot shower? No. He is in prison, chained to the floor, chained to the praetorian guards. And these aren't just any guards. These are the elite guards, guards that guarded Caesar's household. 
and he is chained to them. And there are so many of them, they cannot, chained, they cannot be chained to him all at once. So they're on a rotation of who's having to watch Paul and be chained to him next. And so you, what you have here is Paul being faithful writing this letter to the Philippians and the Praetorian guards are seeing this. They're most likely hearing Paul pray, seeing and hearing Paul singing hymns. He is preaching the gospel to them. And because of that, as they're on the rotation, they too are spreading what they have seen and heard from Paul. That is the message of the gospel. Incredible. And this prison that Paul's in, is nothing to Paul, probably. It was probably one of the most secure things that could have happened to Paul. If you want to turn in your Bibles real quick, hold your place there in Philippians, but turn a couple books over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul in this chapter is defending his credentials, and there is a comparison game going on in the church. And so he says, okay, I'll tell you what I've been through. And in chapter 11, verse 23, read along with me. He says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors in far more imprisonments beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews, 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in far, I have been in labor and hardship through my sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food. In cold and exposure, but apart from all these external things, Paul says, there is a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. If anybody had the right to be discouraged, it was Paul. If there was anyone who had the right to complain about their circumstances, it was Paul, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't focus on his circumstances, church, but rather the fruit of his circumstances, circumstances, which is the advancement of the gospel in our lives should reflect the same in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution. Parents, when your circumstances in your life goes awry, financial crisis or the loss of a loved one or you lose a job, How do you react in front of your children? Do you use that time to exalt Christ and to share the gospel? How you react is everything. Husbands, in the midst of dire circumstances, how do you react in front of your wives? Do you exalt Christ? Is Christ the head of your household? Is your mind focused on him or everything else going on around you? Wives, How do you react in front of your children and your husband when circumstances go awry? Are you exalting Christ in the workplace? How do you react in front of a lost world when circumstances don't seem like they're the best? Or when you're suffering 
is Christ exalted, our lives should be the same as Paul's. We should reflect the same attitude, not focusing on the circumstances, but the fruit of our circumstances. And what is the fruit? Is Christ exalted in our lives? Look at verse 14. He says, And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Where's the church's confidence? Is it in Paul, the apostle? Is it in programs? No, but in the Lord. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord. Why? Because of Paul's circumstances. Paul was bold, yes? He was immovable. And his character was so infectious. His passion for the gospel was so great that it emboldened the church to speak the word of God with no fear. No fear. Not many men are bold today. And it's not hard to see that if you just look at the world around you. Not many men are bold for the gospel. They are few and far between. Many waver. Many crack under pressure, giving way to cultural whims, giving way to false doctrine, unsound, unsound teaching. Why? In order to avoid suffering. Or in order to look more appealing to the world, they lessen the message of the gospel, which is no true gospel at all. But that was not the church in Philippi. They modeled Paul. Paul spoke the word of God with no fear. And because of his circumstances, it gave the Philippian church courage to speak the word of God with no fear. As Paul emboldened the church today, I think of other men that have emboldened the church. Men like Martin Luther, the great reformer that stood up against the Catholic church and its tyranny and its false doctrines. I think of John MacArthur, William Tyndale, the Apostle Peter, John Huss, Pastor Jane Coates in Canada, who was imprisoned for opening his church. And the list throughout history could go on and on. Men who have stood resolute, resolved for the truth of the gospel, unwavered. Men that have stood under immense scrutiny, lies, false accusations, imprisonment, and some even martyrdom. These men and many others have encouraged me to be all the more bold for the gospel of Christ, to speak the word of God without fear. My question is, where are the men like these in our local churches? Why are they so few and far between? Why are we not speaking the word of God without fear? Many people love to talk about these men, these reformers, men that are bold, that aren't afraid to be imprisoned, that aren't afraid to have false accusations made about them. They're not afraid to talk about them. They're not afraid to listen to their sermons. They're not afraid to read their articles or to even go to their conferences. But they don't want to emulate these men. They don't want to have the same boldness. I think they say, you know what? Some, somebody, somebody's got to do it. I'll just kind of 
sit back and let them let them speak the word of God without fear. I'll just kind of, you know, do my own thing. They they speak on behalf of me, and after all, they have a bigger platform. I, I don't. I mean, you know, I'm just really kind of a nobody. Brother and sister, if that's your heart, you need to do a heart check to see where you stand with the Lord, because no true Christian can just sit on the sidelines and be okay with not speaking the gospel, with not speaking the word of God without fear. We must be bold. That's nothing but a sorry excuse to not be obedient to the word of God. If only our local churches were filled with men and women who stood unashamed of the gospel and proclaimed it, what a difference that would make for a kingdom, for the kingdom, what suffering we would endure. And maybe some of you are here and you're convicted knowing that you're just sitting on the sidelines, that you're seeing other people speak the word of God in the workplace, or maybe not at all, or you're just sitting on the bench not really engaged, let me exhort you to repent of that and to follow the example of the Philippian church who spoke the word of God without fear. And in our sufferings, we proclaim the word of God and by that we encourage other believers to proclaim the word of God with no fear. What a testimony to a watching world. What a testimony to the Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Look at verse 15 through 16 with me. Paul says, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. There are two types of people in the church. There are those with pure motives and those with impure motives, those who know Christ and some even who don't, that are self-deceived. There are those that are there for the, at the church for the progress of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. And there are those who go to church and are just in it for themselves. In verse 15, we see those people that are in it for themselves. He says, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from good will. There are people in the church that are envious of Paul. In verse 17, he even says the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. They're jealous of Paul, probably because of his authority in the church, his apostolic credentials. And then we see in verse 16, those who preach Christ from a pure heart. He says, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. There are those who preach Christ from a pure heart because they love Christ because they love the gospel, because they believe in Paul's ministry, knowing what? That he is appointed for the defense of the gospel. They knew that God had put him there. Make no mistake, Christian. When you suffer, when we suffer, 
No matter the suffering, God has sovereignly put us there. As I stated in the beginning, we know that suffering is coming. And it's not just because it randomly happens. And the Lord is thinking, oh, well, I mean, I, I guess I guess I'll use that for my glory. No, God has sovereignly ordained it and has given us the gift of su- suffering. Skip down to verse 29 of Philippians chapter one. Paul is telling the church how to act and react in the church. And he says in verse 29, for to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The Greek here tells us that it is a grace to suffer for Christ. Not only has God sovereignly ordained your salvation, but your sanctification, which includes suffering. It is a gift to suffer for Christ. It is one thing to suffer At the hands of unbelievers, it can be painful, really painful. We saw that earlier in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul knew that exceedingly well, so it shouldn't shock us when we're persecuted by unbelievers. Don't turn there, but just listen. John, in John chapter 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he tells them, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world. But I chose you out of the world, and because of this, the world hates you. It shouldn't shock us when we are persecuted by unbelievers. It shouldn't shock us when the world hates us. True disciples of Christ are hated by the world. And the world hates us. Why? Because they hate Christ. And why did they hate Christ? Because of his message, the gospel message, which tells every human on the planet that they are sinners and eternally damned if they do not repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. As we know, there is grace and there is salvation for all who believe and repent of their sins. And that's what we hope for. That's what we pray for is that many would repent and trust in Christ. But Christ was persecuted for his message, so much so that they nailed him to a cross because of his message, was crucified. So when we follow Christ and we preach the same message, we too will suffer and be persecuted. We will be hated by the world. So we understand that. We understand persecution from the world. However, it is exceedingly more painful to suffer at the hands of those who proclaim to know and to love Christ. To suffer at the hands of those who profess to know him, those who are supposed to support you, those who are supposed to be your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is going through here Maybe this has happened to some of you. Those who are supposed to support you, love you, care for you. Those who are supposedly your brothers and sisters in Christ. Turn their backs on you. They backstab you. 
They hurt you in order to advance themselves and their status. That is the worst pain, and that is exactly what's happening to Paul. He says in verse 17, the, fir- the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. They're sticking their nose up at Paul. They're saying, look at you, Paul. You're in prison. We're on the outside, and we get to preach Christ. Thinking to cause him to stress in his imprisonment. And what's really scary and sobering here is that these people, these false brothers, were not preaching a false Christ. They got the gospel right. Look at verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ. These people knew the gospel. They had a whole theology. They were taught by the Apostle Paul himself. They knew the gospel inside and out. They could probably answer any question on any doctrine. But their motives were impure because they were seeking to advance themselves. Let this be a warning to you, brothers and sisters, that you can know the gospel inside and out. You can have a whole theology, but you can be far from Christ when your motives are impure. We must keep our hearts in check. What is your motivation for coming to church? Is it, are you seeking to advance yourself? Are you just wanting a blessing? What is it? Or are you here because you love Christ and you love the gospel and you want to see his kingdom advance? That was the heart of Paul in the church in Philippi. And what's just ironic is even though Paul's critics were sticking up their nose at him, God used Paul's suffering and his imprisonment far more to advance the gospel than he used the pulpit of the clowns with the impure motives. Incredible. Look at verse 18. We see his response to suffering. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. He says, what then? In other words, so what? Paul says, I don't care. It doesn't bother me. Whether they hate me or they love me, whether their motives are pure or impure, it doesn't bother me because the gospel is being preached. And in that I rejoice. What character Paul possesses. What motive. He rejoices because the gospel is being preached. Critics, detractors, forget about him. I don't care. I am just rejoicing that the gospel is being preached. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. What character we could emulate, church. First Peter chapter 4, verses 13 through 14 says this, But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So at the revelation of his glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. We rejoice. Knowing that it has not only been granted to us to suffer, Philippians 1.29, and that we are blessed when we suffer, knowing that the spirit of the living God rests upon us. 
that we may have joy. But also we rejoice, excuse me, we rejoice because suffering is a proof of our salvation. How do I know this? Look at verse 28 in Philippians 1. Verse 28, starting in verse 27, excuse me, he's telling the church, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Here it is in verse 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. The very fact that we'll encounter critics, the very fact that we'll encounter persecution is in suffering is a sign of our salvation. So we rejoice. We rejoice. And lastly, we see the hope and suffering. Look at verses 19 and 20 with me. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. What Paul means here, by deliverance, we don't know. It could mean physical deliverance from the prison he's in, being that they release him and let him go. Or deliverance in that his life is taken from him, and then he is with the Lord fully and completely delivered. We don't know exactly which one he is referring to, but either way, Paul knows one thing, that his suffering is not forever. It is only momentarily. He will be delivered with the help of the Holy Spirit, By the prayers of the saints in the church in Philippi, he will be delivered. He knows it won't last forever. It is only momentarily. Don't turn there, but listen again. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. Paul says, For our momentary light affliction is what? Producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. It's really easy to get discouraged, to lose hope, to be disheartened when you focus on the temporal things. Seeing what's going on in the Middle East seeing what's happening to our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, Canada, Australia, when you focus on the circumstances and not the one who put you in those circumstances, it is really easy to get discouraged. But it's momentary, this affliction. It's light. That's why we don't look to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. That is Christ We look to him. It reminds me of the old hymn, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We don't focus on the temporal things, but we look to Christ. And when we focus on him, the suffering, the momentary light affliction, 
grow strangely dim. Beautiful. And that momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory beyond anything we could imagine. Incredible. Incredible. Look at verse 20. Paul says, According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. It is Paul's hope that even in these circumstances he will not be put to shame in anything. Why? Because he's stood up for the gospel. He's been obedient to Christ and his word. He has been faithful to the churches. He has spoken the word of God without fear. He has no reason to be ashamed. He has fought the fight. He has kept the faith. And he has no reason to be ashamed because he he knows God has sovereignly put him there in those circumstances and has ordained everything to pass in his life. Our hope and suffering, brothers and sisters, knowing that it won't last forever, and that it's momentary and light, knowing that it is a gift of God, that it is a grace of God, may Christ be magnified in our bodies, whether by life or by death, how we live, whatever happens in our life, whatever suffering we may encounter, however we may die, knowing that it is a grace and a privilege. Let us magnify Christ in all of it. It's in his hands, right? It's all in his hands. We're in his hands. So come what may. May we suffer well to the glory and praise of his name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's life and his testimony and how we can learn so many things from it. Lord, we're not able to live like Paul. We're not able to live the way you want us to live when we don't know you. So, Father, for those in here that may not know you, I pray that you would work in them now salvation that they would call upon your name and repent and believe in the gospel, trust in you. Father, when we suffer individually and as a church, I pray that we would emulate the Philippian church, that we would emulate Paul's life, not discouraged but focused on one thing, the progress of the gospel, that we would pray for one another, that we would encourage one another, that we wouldn't shriek back but with no fear be all the more emboldened to speak the gospel of Christ to speak the word of God. So come what may, may we trust you in all things. And it's in the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen.